the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Well, the first Unicorns record is almost entirely a concept album about how much we didn't get along. And almost every song is a, is a directed at one another. This is the Opus, brought to you by Consequence of Sound, some legacy recordings. I'm your host, Andy Bothwell, and that voice you heard there was Nick Thornburn for the Bane Islands, talking about his band before that, the Unicorns, first and for reasons that will become abundantly clear only full-length album yeah i mean there's literal lines in um child star i hate you and the call and response is i hate you too and if you listen i was born a unicorn it's all all the back and forth vocals are it's just constant turmoil and fighting we definitely wrote lyrics that we made made each other sing and maybe maybe it was more subconscious on on my bandmates part but on mine if there was there was pointed moments where i was like i'm gonna make you sing this line about my frustrations with you and the last song was called ready to die it was totally that our album was all about breaking up i mean before we even started we were we were foretelling our own demise it was that uh destructive and problematic or cathartic and healthy both i mean it was because there was moments of catharsis and then ultimately it probably only it was probably just a sign of things to come i don't think it necessarily fueled the destruction i think it maybe just was the writing was on the wall already but it uh it was part of our narrative and it was it was the tension and it was the the relief and i think it's what made the combustible nature of that band is what made it so exciting i think part of what made it so exciting so i i relate i relate to that with simon and garfunkel a lot is made of the fact that bridge of a trouble water was simon and garfunkel's last album everyone always puts an extra weight on that last album from a great band i mean in the case of the unicorns 
it's even more weight put it when your last album happens to be your first album. I still don't understand how you can make a record that way. Being in each other's throats the entire time. But they did. And it is a really great record. I mean, hell, Fleetwood Mac were sleeping with each other, cheating on each other with each other, writing songs about all of it, making each other sing those songs. And from that, they gave birth to some of the greatest pop music of all time. Being in a band, it's not a friendship. You may start a band with your friends, but if that band progresses to be anything more than something you just do for fun in a garage once a month, then it will change the relationship with your friends into something much more complex. Something much more akin to a marriage. Talk to anybody in a band. Talk to anybody who's been married for a long time. If they tell you it's been smooth sailing for decades, they're probably lying to you. (laughs) At the very least, they're lying to each other. My parents have been married 40 years. And I know for a fact, there have been whole chunks of that time where they have been ready to murder each other. But they're still together, still in love, on vacation right now in Italy, in fact. I think it's safe to say that they've been strengthened by their conflicts, made greater by their differences. Sure, Bridge Over Trouble Water was Simon and Garfunkel's last album together, even though they didn't intend it to be. And sure, they had their conflicts, a lot of which came to head around this record. But I don't think Bridge Over Troubled Water would be the masterpiece that it is without conflict. Yeah, I think if you're, if you're working with another person and you don't have moments of stress and you don't have creative differences, then you're not making any headway and you're not doing anything meaningful. So it's really good to have that back and forth between us. This is Mateo Brown. She's a really, really exciting musician out of Atlanta making great garage rock. She's caught the attention of people like Jack White, Portugal the Man, both of them who've taken her on tour. I was talking to her and her songwriting partner, Jonas Swiley, about what it's like to work together. What she said about the necessity of conflict makes total sense. It's wise beyond her years. If you constantly sugarcoat everything in the studio, what you end up getting is saccharine bullshit. She's not saying you have to be Fleetwood Mac. What she is saying is you have to be honest. And that honesty will lead to creative conflict, but also lead to something more critical, something more valuable when you're making a great record. And that's trust. We've made a really cool set of work together just by trusting each other. Trust is a huge thing that just naturally seems to happen between us. You say that it happens naturally between you, but I also think that trust is a skill, right? Yeah, I think it's a huge skill for any artist to to really, really think about what they want to fight for and what things they're willing to let go and trust, uh, put instill trust in someone else. It's a hard thing to do as an artist, and it's hard for me because I have historically known myself not to work well with other people, but it yields it yields very good results to have that trust, you know. And what comes from that trust is the thing. The magical thing that allows creative partnerships to create great work. Because once you have that trust, you have the security to let everybody on the team do their job. You trust that the songwriter knows what they're doing writing songs. 
And you trust the engineer knows what they're doing engineering. And you trust that the producer knows what they're doing with producing. So you don't have to worry so much about them and their job. And it frees up your brain and your time to focus on your work. Writing lyrics or singing or polishing up your guitar solo or whatever it may be. And from this, order is born. Which allows everyone to pull together. I don't interfere really very much with the... Jonah's music writing and his production and when I write lyrics and when I put words in certain places no, no one is no one is messing with that either so we have mutual respect for each other and, and it just happens to work really well. So if you want the ship to sail smoothly you have to trust that everyone on the boat's tying their damn knots tight but that trust doesn't just appear it comes from conflict from pushing each other, from checking each other's work. Simon and Garfunkel first met when they were 11 years old. They first appeared on TV under the name Tom and Jerry when they were 15 years old. From that point on, they worked relentlessly on music together, spent months and months out on the road together. And after that, spent more time together in the studio. You're damn right, there was conflict. And I, for one, am glad for it. Because without that conflict, without art pushing on Paul... Paul pushing back on Art, Roy Halley pushing both of them. They never would have given us this. I am just a poor boy, though my story is seldom told. I have squandered my resistance for a pocket full of mumbles, such are promises. All lies and chess, still the man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. When I left my home Doing my research for this season, I started to get a bit annoyed, frankly, with the way journalists still talk about this band. There's such an obsession with the fact that they're not a band anymore. Beyond the fact that this has been covered to death from every possible angle, objectively, this shouldn't be news anymore. They haven't been a band for 50 years now. What's to be gained from another think piece about it? They worked together for 15 years. In that time, they made five classic albums that totally pushed folk and pop music forward in gigantic, ways. The fact that it ended it doesn't seem all that special. Bands break up all the time. 15 years is actually a great run for a band. What is much more interesting to me than why they stop working together is how they work together in that time. I spoke with C.J. Camereri, who's a trumpet and French horn player and arranger for the contemporary classical ensemble Y Music. In addition to that, he's done work with Money Vare. Sufjan Stevens, The National, Bell and Sebastian, and Paul Simon. He actually helped arrange some of the songs for Paul Simon's farewell tour, including the really amazing reworking of Bridge Over Troubled Water that Paul performed on SNL. You can actually see CJ right up in front with the trumpet. He was also in the studio for the last two Paul Simon records. And what he saw about the way Paul worked with Roy Halley speaks to what I've been talking about in this episode. Yeah, I, mean, I actually worked like extensively on Paul's last two records, which were both produced by Roy Haley, which was really interesting because Roy kind of like 
Paul, you know, Paul's the artist, you know, Paul's the songwriter in the room. And it was that way with Simon and Garfunkel as well. But Paul's not a audio guy. Paul knows when it's right and when it's wrong, you know, um, and it was really fun watching him and Roy work because Roy knew his roles and it wasn't a lot of the things he would think about. It wasn't arrangement. It wasn't crafting a song. It wasn't anything like that. It was just how do we make, how do we realize what Paul's hearing? He didn't have opinions on songwriting and phrasing and, and, and any of that um, and song sculpting. Um, but he did want to have really specific ideas in miking and in Echo, they used reverb in interesting ways on those records. And that's a lot of Roy's influence. Watching their working relationships, these last two records, is really interesting just because, you know, there's so much history there. Just like knowing what he could add to the process and not take anything away from what Paul does was really just fascinating to watch. These two guys, Roy Halley and Paul Simon, have been working together off and on for over 50 years. They're a well-oiled machine now. You don't get that sharp. You don't get that trust without pushing on each other and pushing back over half a century. And this was all born from the Simon and Garfunkel years. Originally, when Paul first wrote it, the song Bridge Over Troubled Water was only two verses. He started working on it, him, Art, and Roy. And Art said, this isn't it. It feels like it's building to something, but it, it's not there. It needs a third verse. And for people that want to act like art was just a beautiful voice, just some instrument to execute Paul's songwriting, you are tripping. What makes this album great, what makes Simon and Garfunkel great, is not just the songwriting of Paul Simon and the voice of Art Garfunkel. It's that art had the balls to say to Paul Simon, one of the most successful and popular songwriters of the day, cool song, bud, come back when it's three verses. And they had enough trust and respect for each other and the knowledge that they brought to the table and the roles that they played in the work that Paul actually listened to him. He wrote the famous third verse, the Sail On Silver Girl verse, which allowed the song to grow and ultimately become the anthem that it is today. You know, it is interesting. The song Ridge Over Troubled Water is the apogee of Simon and Garfunkel. This is Jordan Hoffman, a film critic and culture reporter for The Guardian, Vanity Fair, New York Daily News. Astute and loyal listeners to the Opus will recognize him from the season we did on Bob Dylan, which was before my time. There's a reason it's the, the biggest hit. It's the reason it's the, the album that's the biggest hit. You know, it, it's, it's enshrined in rock for, for very good reasons. And Simon and Garfunkel is Simon in all caps and Garfunkel in parentheses uh, for a lot of people. But... You know, on that song, and in many other cases, but particularly in that one song, it's the Art Garfunkel show. I mean, Paul Simon may have written it, but it's Art Garfunkel's performance. For him to step out and just be so powerful in that vocal performance, by the end, you just want to stand up and cheer.
is something special, isn't it? Paul Simon writes this amazing song. Art tells him, do better. Paul comes back with a better version, and then instead of singing himself and having Art back him up, insists that Art sing it alone. Roy Halley gets the wrecking crew to play it. <laughs> the rest is history. I'm fascinated by this workflow. You know, Art knowing that Paul had a greater song in him than the first version, and then pushing him for it. And Paul knowing that the song was for Art and insisting on it. Simon and Garfunkel are sharp minds with strong opinions and the skill to back it up. And they spent 15 years pushing, learning, growing, getting to that place, and then bringing in a producer and engineer like Roy Halley to push them even further. This is how you get these results. And they weren't just being pushed by each other. They're competitive. I love this. You know, they're working at the same time as the Beatles, the Beach Boys, Bob Dylan, Pink Floyd, and these two nice boys from Queens, they didn't shrink from the competition. They rose to it. They were pushed along by the music and the culture around them as well. They say in interviews that they were going at the Beatles with this record. To them, that was their competition. The Beatles, the greatest band of all time. And with Bridge Over Trouble Water, they were trying to top them. They didn't know it was going to be their last record. But they sure as hell worked on it like it was going to be their last record. They went all over the country, to different studios, to different states, to the chapel of Columbia University, just to get the right sound. And on the boxer alone, they recorded over 100 hours of tape trying to get it perfect. They weren't making an album, they were building a pyramid. And as a result, they didn't just push their own music forward. They pushed all of pop music forward. Well, well as you know, they, they started it before Woodstock... And, and didn't finish it until after Woodstock. This is Jay Sweet, the executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival. If you don't know what the Newport Folk Festival is, it started in 1959, and it is the prototype for all modern American music festivals. These mofos blew off Woodstock to continue making this album. <laughs> you know, like, And if we all say that Woodstock was the demarcation line between the death of the ideal of the 60s, I mean, people can say Altamont, whatever, but you get my point. It's like, I, I, I think it's... This was being recorded in the middle of the high point and then the aftermath, right? I think you can hear it on it. I think you can hear the slick production coming in of what happened in the 70s where it became more almost as much about the producers and the slickness and the studio and the toys. I mean, remember, weren't they the first people to record on a 16-track? I think this is like one of the first albums recorded on a 16-track. You know, this is where it starts to become about the production and not about just throwing a microphone in the room and trying to capture everything, you know. To say it's a seminal album is, uh, I think, an understatement. Often as listeners, we're so focused on the product of an artist. Is their latest album good or bad? Is their new song good or bad? And we don't always take time to see each piece as a part of a continuum. This record is a masterpiece is flawless from top to bottom. But it's also an important mile marker on the continuum of American pop culture and the creative lives of both Simon and Garfunkel. It came out right at the start of 1970. And what J-Sweet is saying is right. It really did mark a shift between the age of Aquarius in the 1960s and the big pivot America would make in the 1970s, by the end of which we'd have disco, rap music. I mean, they weren't the only folk band in America. 
but they were the only folk band all of America was listening to. This record became the greatest selling record of all time, and it held that title until the 80s when Michael Jackson put out Thriller. Like, you can stop anybody right now, anybody, in a grocery store in pretty much anywhere in America, and you could tap pretty much anybody, say, over the age of 30. I'll even give it to maybe 25. And you could say Starman and Garfunkel or Bridge Over Troubled Water, and they know the melody, right? Because it's been in, I don't know, thousands of languages and Elvis and all, all the people that have covered it, right? And while that's, a, that's, that's kind of like, that's a pretty impressive thing to have recreated. And then you could also say that, though, for the boxer. You, you know what I mean? You, you, can, you can say that for Cecilia. You can say that for at least three, if not four songs on this album that anybody of a certain age knows what you're talking about. And I don't, there aren't that many albums in the world that you can say that about. So when Simon and Garfunkel start to move away from folk music on this album, it isn't just two musicians pushing their sound in a new direction. They're pushing the entire culture in a new direction. You can't overstate the significance of this record. And sure, it was their last album together, but it's important not to see it as an end, but also as a part of the continuum of their individual and significant creative lives. Jay Sweet's a fantastic person to talk about this because his music history knowledge is crazy deep, and especially when it comes to folk and rock music. He made this amazing point in our conversation about the significance of the song The Only Living Boy in New York. By the way, as a side note, out of everyone I interviewed on this podcast, 90% of the people said this was their favorite song on the album, which I found fascinating. Not the title track, not the boxer, not even Cecilia, which is my favorite song on the album. But I digress. Quite famously, Only Living Boy in New York is written about Paul's feeling of loneliness while working on the album. Art had started his acting career, and he'd been cast in the Mike Nichols film version of Catch-22, which... Naturally, filming took longer than expected, and so it had Paul working alone for the first time, for large chunks of time, while Art was on set around the world. And this inspired the song, the opening line of which is, Tom, get your plane on time, which is a nod of their original band named Tom and Jerry, in which Art was Tom, Paul was Jerry. And he follows it with, I know your part will go fine. Fly down to Mexico, and here I am, the only living boy in New York. Oh, God. It's a dagger. A song is a dagger. It's such a beautiful and gut-wrenching song. It's such a great song to put on to magnify your own loneliness. It is an incredible piece of songwriting. And a song that not only foretells of their future split, but also, according to Jay Sweet, foretells of Paul Simon's solo work. And again, I'm playing into something that, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of conjecture here, but I think writing a song like that without art is what gives someone like that confidence to be like, I'm going to, I can do this on my own. I'm just being blunt. And if you're talking about, I'm the, you know, the only living boy in New York at the loneliness about art not being there and he's trying to finish this album and he's got this song and his ying to his yang is not there right and he captured that you got to hear that when that thing comes out in 1970 and be like yep 
I can do this. I, I, you know, like I can, I can take the next step. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fail if it's just me because all the other things were built together, right? All the other songs were, were, like I said, like you build the boxer over a hundred hours, you built a pyramid that is going to stand the test of time because it took a hundred hours, different places, different recording styles, work, built it, crafted it, sculpted it. Then you write that song and it feels like lightning in a bottle. What Jay Sweet said makes a lot of sense, because only two years later, Paul releases his self-titled album, which contains Mother and Child Reunion, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard, Peace Like a River. It launches his solo career in proper, a solo career that would eventually lead to another culture-shifting record in 1986 with Graceland. God, go listen to Graceland. (laughs) Would he have had the guts to go it alone? And make those albums if he hadn't made The Only Living Boy in New York by himself? And would he have had the chops to make that song alone? If he hadn't been sharpening his skills with art by his side for 15 years? I don't think so. I think Jay is right. Bridge Over Troubled Water did mark the end of their career together. But it also marked the beginning of their solo work to come. And it wasn't just Paul doing interesting things after they parted ways. Paul may have had the most success as a solo musician. I mean, success is sort of an understatement. He sort of went on to become probably the most important and maybe the greatest American songwriter. But art, damn, art. Art has lived a life I really admire. He continued to make solo work that was crazy successful by every metric. I mean, his solo debut, Angel Clare, was a top 10 record in America. He had number one songs in the UK You know, it went on and on. He didn't just stop. But beyond that, he wrote books and poetry. He acted in a bunch of fantastic films. He taught high school geometry for a year just because he wanted to. In his apartment in New York, he has a library of every book that he's ever read, arranged chronologically in the order in which he read them. And it's like well over a thousand books. In the early 1980s, he just walked across Japan by himself because he felt like it. And then one day after that, he walked out of his apartment in Manhattan, crossed the George Washington Bridge in Jersey, and then just kept going, ultimately leading to him walking across all of America. 1994, he flew to Ireland and decided to walk across Europe. Granted, he did America and Europe in chunks, but you can see the routes on his website. It is no small feat. All of this, art's life, as art, as a renaissance man, Paul's prolific and incredible body of solo work, all of this is made possible by their work together. Simon and Garfunkel started when they were in high school, but by the time they parted ways in 1970, they'd grown so much together. They'd learned so much from each other, from their successes, from their conflicts. They, I mean, they were walking out of the 60s with goddamn doctorates in culture creation. 
So I think it's unfair to focus on their split. I'm totally pointless to speculate as to what caused it. Instead, I like to think of Bridge Over Troubled Water as the culmination of their work together. Their finest hour. And I, for one, am glad it's the last thing we have for them as a group. I love it when bands go out on top. I love that The Clash's last full length is Combat Rock. I love that we only get one neutral Milk Hotel album. I don't want to see my favorite bands stumbling around in the outfield like Willie Mays. I want to picture them in their prime, at the top of their game. And fortunately, Simon and Garfunkel, we don't have to picture them as old, sweaty, desperate in some Vegas review. No. When we think of Simon and Garfunkel, we think of Bridge Over Troubled Water. We think of the boxer. We think of Cecilia. We think of them together in perfect harmony. This has been season seven of The Opus. If you haven't listened to the two previous episodes about Bridge Over Troubled Water, I encourage you to do so. This album is really an incredible piece of work. And it's sort of grown beyond a pop record now. It's part of the American cultural canon, like Cole Porter. If you still haven't listened to it from front to back, stop what you're doing and do that now. Make it happen. Whew. I want to thank my guests, Nick Thornburn of Islands, CJ Camareri of Y Music, Mateel Brown, who just goes by Mateel when she makes records. Go check out all of their albums. They're all making fantastic, diverse music. It's such a great reflection of the wide, sweeping influence of Simon and Garfunkel. And I promise, if you like Simon and Garfunkel, you're probably going to like what they're doing, too. I'd also like to thank film critic and cultural reporter Jordan Hoffman and uh, executive producer of the Newport Folk Festival, Jay Sweet. If you want to hear more of Jay talking music, he has a podcast, the Newport Folk Podcast. He was a delight to talk to, and I would expect nothing less if he has a podcast either. Last but not least, I want to thank the big homie Jell from the world-famous Anticon crew for letting me use his song Late Pass at the start of the episode. Jell is a legend. That's all there is to it. For real honor to have him on this podcast. If you haven't already gone over to consequencesound.net, check out the contest they're running, you should. You can enter to win the entire Simon and Garfunkel catalog on vinyl thinking about entering myself as always leave us a review on itunes tell your friends and be sure to subscribe the more y'all do this stuff the more y'all spread the word the more i get to keep doing this talking to you about records that i love (laughs) yelling into this microphone we got an exciting season coming up next month but uh i'm gonna save that announcement because we're planning to do some stuff between now and then so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a dang thing Thanks for listening, y'all. The Consequence of Sound, Sony Legacy Recordings. I'm Andy Bothwell, and this is The Opus.
Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska name three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network, 